turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, as we continue our journey through this book, just a couple of weeks in. If you are unfamiliar with the Bible and would like to follow along, there should be a black hardbound Bible in front of you. And 1 Samuel 2, where we will begin, is on page 226. 226. Scrolling on a screen to find 1 Samuel does not sound quite as sweet as the flipping of pages, I have to be honest. Uh, So I'm thankful for the pages that flip. Why don't we pray together, and then um, we're actually going to do our reading bit by bit as we go through, because we're covering a large bit of territory. So, why don't we pray, and uh, then we'll begin. Our Father, we are thankful that You have sent the Righteous One, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. We are thankful for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from every sin, that His sacrifice is sufficient to make us right with You, and that You have vindicated Him and assured us by raising Him from the dead. How sweet the sound of saving grace. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace toward us. We pray now as we come to the Bible that You will speak to us. We come as those who recognize we cannot live on our own, that we must have words from outside of us to instruct us and show us the way. And we come as those who confess that Your Word is authoritative and sufficient to do just that. And so we pray that You will teach us today. We pray that You will challenge us as Your people, that You will change us, that You will encourage us, that You will correct us, that You will rebuke us, that You will build us up where we need to be built up, and you will tear down what needs to be torn down. We pray for those who are among us who don't know you as Savior and Lord. We thank you that they are here. We thank you that your word is powerful to speak to all who listen. And we pray that by your Spirit, your word will bring conviction and that they will come to faith in Jesus Christ when they see Him exalted. I pray that You will help me as I open Your book to speak to Your people as Your servant for Your glory in the name of Your Son. Amen. If you are reading through the Bible with us, if you... uh, Took, uh, we have some reading plans that we're using as a congregation. There are a few different ones. If you're on the read through the Bible plan, then this last little bit you've been in the book of Leviticus. It's a book where many people who make the triumphant and hopeful claim that they will finally read through the Bible this year, Leviticus uh, seems to be for so many people the place where they get tripped up, uh, where they get stalled out and uh, where they decide, maybe I'll try another way of reading the Bible. And, um, but Leviticus is incredibly important. It is incredibly important. In fact, one could well say that you can't fully understand the New Testament unless you understand a book like Leviticus, that you can't understand the book of Hebrews without understanding 
the book of Leviticus. And one of the major themes in that book that we've been reading about together is the fact that God calls His people to be holy, to be distinct, to be set apart, to be unique among all the nations of the world in the way that they do things as simple as eat and dress, the way they treat the poor, the the way that they treat one another, the way they preserve justice in society, the way that they worship. It all must be unique. It all must be set apart. It all must be holy. And God says that they are to be holy because He is holy. Leviticus 19.2, God says to Moses, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And in this holy nation, the priests are to lead the way in being holy, so that God specifically says of the priests, just a couple of chapters later, Leviticus 21, they shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. And then later, for the priest is holy to his God. You'll remember that they actually wear a sign that says, holy to the Lord. And then again, he shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. You see, holiness matters for all of God's people, but it especially matters for those who lead God's people. It is so important. Nothing changes when you get to the New Testament, so you get to a place like 1 Peter 1, and Peter reiterates what he knows from Leviticus, that he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And leading the way in holiness, by te- both by teaching and by example, are meant to be pastors and elders. So that Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 2, that an overseer must be above reproach. And in Titus 1.8, he says they must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. It wouldn't take long for us to begin to spin a web of stories that we've seen over and over again in our own day where that has simply not been the case, where men who hold this precious office become domineering lords over those that they are supposed to lovingly lead where the misuse of money happens, where counseling situations turn into adultery or abuse. But friends, holiness matters for all of God's people, and it especially matters for those who lead God's people. So that Peter will later say in 1 Peter 5 that those who are elders should actually set an example for the flock. Friends, it, is, it makes me tremble to know, and it makes our elders tremble to know, that you should be able to look at the lives of these six men and say, that's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be set apart to Him, to do His work, to live His way, to love a wife, to raise a family, to treat others, that that is what we should follow. Holiness matters. And that's why... The story we'll look at today should break our hearts and turn our stomachs. Because Hophni and Phinehas, two priests, sin in an unimaginable way. They treat God's Word 
lightly. They see their service as a means of personal gain. They see the women who serve in the tent of meeting as a means of their own physical satisfaction. And all the while, their father, also a priest, won't stop them. In truth, these priests are just a reflection of the moral relativism of their day. You'll remember what Judges says, right? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we are still in that timeline as 1 Samuel dawns. But here's the good news. These two worthless priests and their gutless father in the midst of a faithless generation can't stop God from being faithful. That's the good news. That is great news, isn't it? So the Lord will deal with them. The Lord will condemn them. The Lord will expel them, punish them. And in their place, He'll raise up and confirm a new leader, a faithful leader, a surprising leader, one who doesn't actually come from a priestly background, one whose mother was, was once a barren outcast. God calls Samuel and raises him up as a leader. And that's what we're going to look at in 1 Samuel 2 and 3. But there's a warning here as we, as we get into this. This is not merely a character study, okay? This is not here's the good characters and good character and here's the bad characters, though that is clearly present. This study should actually point us to the character of God more than anything else. You see, in all in both of these chapters, God's name is Yahweh. And in our English translation, that is seen as Lord, L-O-R-D, all capitals. And it is a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness to His people. So that as He deals with these worthless men, He is the faithful God. And He's faithful to His people, and He's faithful to give His people faithful leaders. And actually, that's what we see here, that our faithful God provides faithful leaders for His people. That's what He's going to do. He will not let it go on forever. Just think of how long-suffering God is with Hophni and Phinehas as they trample over His glory in the midst of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting. And yet God will not let it go. Patience is the one characteristic of God that is not eternal. It will one day run out. And when that day comes, it is terrifying for those who have rebelled against Him. And so I want us to look at these basically from chapter 2, verse 12 through the end of chapter 3 as three scenes, three scenes of distinct contrast where God condemns Hophni and Phinehas and He confirms Samuel. Scene 1 is a contrast between faithless priests and a faithful family. Let's begin reading in chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. 
Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, "Uh, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great. In the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. The scene opens with a really dreadful statement, doesn't it? These two priests are worthless. They are useless. They are good for nothing. They don't know the Lord. They'd heard of Him. They'd served Him in a kind of official capacity. They can say right things. They could probably teach others about Him. They they know Him without really knowing Him. It calls to mind Matthew 7, doesn't it? When Jesus says, No one who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, on that day, Hophni and Phinehas will say, Lord, didn't we, didn't we orchestrate the sacrifices in your name? I don't know you. You see, they know Him without really knowing Him. They have no regard for Him. They have no reverence for Him. There's no humility before Him, no sense of awe and wonder. And this not knowing becomes clear in what they do, right? This is exactly what Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. You see, as the sacrifices are being made, the priests are guaranteed a particular portion. The breast and the right leg are meant to go to the priest so that they can eat that. But that's not good enough for Hophni and Phinehas. They want more. They want a veritable Baptist members meeting plate, you know, just covered with all of the food that they can possibly take. So they send out their lackey on a mission who walks around with a giant barbecue fork. And he walks around, he sees a pot and it's going, so he just sticks his fork in and whatever he hits, he takes it. This is for the priests. But, but this is for the priests. And he keeps doing this and doing this. But he doesn't just take what's meant for the families to eat. He actually takes what belongs to the Lord. You see that discussion of the fat that they have in there about, well, let's burn the fat first, and then you can take whatever you want. You see, the the fat was meant to be burnt unto the Lord. Leviticus 3, all fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places, that you eat neither fat nor blood. But Hophni and Phinehas couldn't care less. They want what they want, and they want it 
now. They look at God's offerings and they look at God's word about God's offerings with contempt. Come on, they, come on, this doesn't really matter. Don't be so legalistic about this, guys. We just want some extra food. Can you picture the scene? Priests taking rather than giving. Seeking to be served rather than to serve. Laughing at the Lord rather than worshiping Him. And God's condemnation is there in verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. Friends, we need to beware of belittling God's Word. We need to beware of belittling things like the ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper. We need to beware of making God's call to holiness optional. Like there's the Christians, and then there's the next level holy Christians. There is no such distinction in God's mind. All His people are called to be holy. You see, it's not a sign of intelligence or enlightenment or Christian freedom to dismiss God's Word. It's faithlessness. It demonstrates that one does not really know the Lord. Do you dismiss God's Word? When it corrects you, how do you respond? When it speaks, are your ears open? Are you treating the Lord and His work lightly? Now against that backdrop, the camera cuts to Samuel's faithful family here in verses 18 and 19. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband. Can you just see him? Little Samuel with his little linen ephod. And here come, here come Hannah and Elkanah. Here they come. They come every year to Shiloh like they're supposed to. You remember Hannah had given up Samuel into the service of the Lord, but obviously she's not begrudging it. She comes back every year with another little robe so he can wear it and keep serving the Lord. She remembers every year that he doesn't belong to her ultimately. He belongs to the Lord. And so she comes and she gives this and Elkanah gives his blessing and the Lord adds his blessing and opens her womb so that she doesn't just have Samuel, she has more. She conceived and the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Do you see that contrast? Those who presume on the Lord's kindness... Versus the family that will not presume anything but faithfulness, 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 faithfulness. Keep coming, keep worshiping. Scene two, we see defiant priests and a developing boy, beginning in verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. 
and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put him to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor, with the Lord and also with man. So apparently the sins of Hophni and Phinehas are no private affair. I mean, sin would love to be kept in the dark. Doesn't sin love to be kept in the dark and be kept hidden away and kept from everybody else and don't tell anybody what's happened here? Sin loves that. But what maybe they had tried to keep in the dark, God has brought to the light. Everybody else knows it. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody's been there. Everybody's had a cauldron where their fork has come in and taken some of their stuff. And then this whole business with the women in the tent of meeting, everybody knows they're not just helping themselves to offerings, they're helping themselves to the women who serve. And when Eli hears, he goes to his sons, hoping that they will listen and change, but they simply won't. They just dutifully stare at him, waiting for him to finish, and then going about their merry business. Now, to my own shame, this reminds me of being a teenager with my parents. Dutifully listen, let them finish what they're going to say, because if you speak up, they'll just keep going. And then go about my merry way. But these boys, it's not just that they're sinful boys. It's that they're sinful boys with the veneer of priesthood on, claiming to be priests. And nothing happens after that. Their minds won't be changed. And then we read this in verse At the end of verse 25, listen to this. They would not listen to the voice of the Lord, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, this is both important to pay attention to and also difficult to pay attention to. It is not that the Lord's will was to put them to death because they wouldn't listen to their father. Did you notice that? It was they would not listen to their father because it was the Lord's will to put them to death. What has happened here is not unlike what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, where people know God, but they refuse to honor Him as God. And the longer that trench gets dug in a person's life, there comes a point where Paul says in Romans 1, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. Three times in that one chapter, Paul says God gave them up. They knew God but would not honor Him as God. So what happens? God gives them up. And they sink deeper and deeper into depravity until they're past the point of no return. First Timothy chapter 4 verse 2 speaks about a moment when one's conscience can be seared. 
It's a way of speaking of it being cauterized. There's no sensitivity left to the things of God. Eli's words should convict his sons, but they do nothing because their hearts are cauterized to the truth of God. Parents, how we must pray for our children. How we must pray that the message of the gospel that we say over and over and over and over again will not bounce off a cauterized heart. How we must pray for the sharpness of the word to penetrate a soft heart, for God to give them a heart that will hear and respond. Don't don't think it's ever too early to start praying for that. It's not. But there did come a day when it was too late for these boys. But it's not just our children who need that warning, is it? It's anyone who would profess to believe in Jesus. Uh, In John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress... Christian meets a man, uh, he's in the house of interpreter, and he meets a man who's in a dark room and he's in a cage. And he begins to talk with that man and question him, and this man thought he was a good Christian because he had made a profession of faith. But in truth, his way of living was belittling Jesus and belittling the death of Jesus, And now he's found himself beyond the point of no return, and he's in a cage in the dark, and he's hopeless. This is what he says to Christian, I promised myself great delight in the enjoyment of the desires, pleasures, and profits of this world. But now every one of those things bite me and gnaw at me like burning worms. God has denied me repentance." He himself has shut me up in this iron cage, and all the men in the world can't let me out. Oh, eternity, eternity, how will I cope with the misery I'll meet in eternity? And seeing that man and seeing his misery, Christian receives this warning from interpreter. Remember this man's misery, and let it be an everlasting caution to you. They wouldn't listen because it was too late. The will of the Lord had been settled. This is very hard to hear, isn't it? It is very hard. But listen to Hebrews 10. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice. For sins. One commentator in applying this said, Some may become Yahweh's prosecutors, alleging He is deficient in mercy. Others may be intellectually curious. At what precise point in sin's progress does it become impossible to repent? Our place is not to question or to comprehend, but to tremble before a God who can justly make sinners deaf to the very call of repentance. Now, maybe you're not a Christian. You see something that's good in Christianity, and you think, 
well, I just dabble in this, or I'll just take it seriously later, later on, once I'm older, once I've lived my life my way, or right before I die, I'll take care of this whole thing. Well, friend, that is a dangerous mindset when you consider Hophni and Phinehas. There is no guarantee that your heart will not be hardened and cauterized and unchangeable at that point. But if you hear that now, and you feel it pressing in on you, it squeezes you, it terrifies you to think that your heart could be hardened, it is not too late. It is not. If that brings conviction and stirs you and makes you know that you are in such danger of doing that, it is not too late. The Spirit is at work and you can come to Jesus by His grace. But don't wait. Not waiting is not a, some tactic of evangelists to try to get all their numbers up before you leave the auditorium. The call to not wait is a very serious and sober one because it can lead to a cage out of which you will never get. Don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait. Isaiah said it best, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Seek the Lord while He may be found. And as Hophni and Phinehas shrivel into their dark cages, God grows Samuel. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. The light of God's faithfulness and commitment to His people simply will not go out. You feel like it's never going to end. You read about Hophni and Phinehas, you get, you just, your heart just goes, oh, right? And then God just says, but Samuel, but Samuel, but I'm not done. Here's Samuel. This is incredibly hopeful. It's incredibly hard and it's incredibly hopeful. Both and. Scene three. We find in the longest scene, condemned priests and a called boy. Now, at this point, a man of God shows up, a prophet. His name is not important because it's not given, but his message is, beginning in verse 27, And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I in indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices? Why? Why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Now, we'll keep going in just a minute, but think about what God has done, what He says He's done. He's revealed Himself to their ancestors in Egypt. He gave them a place of privileged service as priests. And what have they done in return? Push Him away. When He says, why do you scorn my offerings? Uh, I just want you to imagine a small child throwing a fit, and when you go near to comfort them, they kick you. 
They kick you away. That's exactly the word there, to kick at him. God has come near to them, and they have kicked him away. And not just the boy. Eli's culpable too. God says, you honored your sons above me. Now that hits close to home today, doesn't it? Doesn't that hit close to home today in our child-centered world? Where baseball and ballet can have the highest priority even on the Lord's Day. And not just on the Lord's Day. Dear friend, if you are busy every second with your with your children's everything, every moment of every day, and you're never spending time as a family, you're never leading your family, you're never doing those things. Who are we seeking to honor at that point? It doesn't mean kids shouldn't play sports. It means sports shouldn't rule kids or their families. Can you imagine? Could you imagine us? I mean, it would be very disappointing for us on Sunday afternoons, I'm sure, so bear with me. But can you imagine a society where the church is so committed to God that the people, that the people of God refuse to do all of the things, invest all of the money, and do all of the traveling, and be gone from everything, anytime, anywhere, anytime, anywhere. I'll go anywhere, do anything for the sake of my kids and for the sake of their sports. What if that dried up the NFL draft? Could you imagine such a thing? We're not headed there anytime soon. And I sure am thankful for the believers who are in the NFL and the way they speak up. But it's not just sports. It can be music. It can be their academic life. It can be just prioritizing anything over the Lord. Why do you honor your sons above me. And so both father and sons have sinned against the Lord. You know, later David will pray, uh, keep, uh, keep me from presumptuous sins. But that's exactly the kind of thing that they're doing. God has blessed them with kindness and they sin against Him. Romans 2 says, you have, you, you have sinned, you have You have sinned presumptuously against my kindness. You presumed on the kindness of God when the kindness of God should lead you to repentance. So their whole family line will be cut off, condemned, and only one of these three will be left, and he'll be left in a puddle of his own tears. Let's keep reading, verse 30. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me, I will, uh, shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Both of them. But God won't leave His people. 
God will not leave His people. Keep going. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to all to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. In other words, what Hannah prays in chapter 2, verse 5, will come to pass. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. That is precisely what will happen. Those who find themselves full on the things of this world will be empty. Now, in the short term, this faithful priest is the line of Zadok, all right, Z-A-D-O-K. And you can see the transition uh, in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 25 and 26, where Solomon replaces Abiathar with Zadok, and then it says this was to fulfill the words about Eli's house. Okay? But in the long term, a greater and permanent and faithful high priest comes, doesn't he? Jesus. He is, according to Hebrews 2, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, some people try to make up for their own sins by trying to outdo the bad with the good. And, but friends, that's a treadmill that will get you nowhere with God. Nowhere. Only one can satisfy God's wrath against sin, and that is Jesus. That's what that word propitiation means. It means to satisfy. Only the death of Jesus Christ satisfies the wrath of God against us. There is nothing we can contribute. There is nothing we can do to gain favor. Nothing at all. Only Jesus Christ, His death and His righteousness, His death for our sin, His righteousness credited to us, that is our only hope of standing right before God. I mean, this goes back to Eli's question. If someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for Him? Well, the answer is Jesus Christ. The answer is that God Himself comes in the person of Jesus to intercede before God the Father on our behalf so that we might stand righteous before Him. And everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus will be forgiven and made right with God. You see, friend, if, you, if that is not you, if that's not describing your relationship with God, then the Bible would call you to turn, to repent, to change, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He is not only the perfect high priest, He made the perfect sacrifice of Himself on the cross to satisfy God's wrath. He was burned up, as, you, as it were, in the wrath of God that we might escape it. He drank the cup dry, and there's not a sip left for us. Do you know God that way? I would love nothing more than to talk with you after the service if you don't. I would love nothing more for you to turn to someone who invited you here or who is a member around you and talk to them about it after the service. But don't wait. Boy, we've made that, the Bible's made that clear already, hasn't it? Don't wait. 
Now, the writer contrasts this condemnation with the call of Samuel, which starts in chapter 3. Hophni and Phinehas don't know the Lord, period. Samuel doesn't know the Lord yet, but he comes to know Him. Let's read verses 1 to 10 here in chapter 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel and said, Here I, and, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down, and the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Now stop for just a moment. This text is not here so that you and I can go out and find some way to hear an audible voice from God. Let me tell you what this highlights. What we should walk away from that text with is how patient our God is. Can you, pick, can you imagine God is not standing with folded arms, tapping his toes, sighing heavily, saying, when is this boy going to figure it out? He just keeps coming back to Samuel. Samuel? Samuel? How many of us would be so thankful for the way the Lord was patient with us before we became a Christian? The way he kept coming to us through pastors, through teachers, through friends, who kept sharing the gospel with us, who kept praying for us. How thankful are we that He kept calling our name? How thankful are we now that He is still patient with us? We give Him every reason to give up and throw in the towel, and He keeps going. You see, the same God that closes the stubborn heart is the God who patiently calls. These are not two different gods. This is one God who comes to his people, and keeps calling them. And once Samuel hears the call, God gives him a message. According to verse 11, it's one that will make ears tingle. Let's listen to it. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. You see, Eli had rebuked his boys, but he hadn't restrained them. He just let them keep going. Oh, now they'll learn. I taught them better than this. 
We need somebody to work this part of the tent of meeting. Rather than a commitment to holiness, Eli seems committed to some feigned notion of peace in his home. He won't remove them. He doesn't discipline them. It's not hard to draw a line from that Eli to one current approach to parenting children, is it? To one that consistently warns but never disciplines? One that complains about children not listening but never using the tools God gives to help them grow? It's also the fact that we are reminded, we should be reminded in the church, in God's family, that God is not honored when we tolerate sin among His people, in His family. That we, as God, must discipline those we love because God disciplines those He loves. We must rebuke. We must be patient. We must be the people who still say, Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel. Who knows how many times Hophni and Phinehas' name had been called, right? But we must also be the ones to remove. Why? Because God's glory is on the line. Doing nothing cannot be an option. And then Samuel, with his knees knocking and his voice breaking, shares the message with Eli Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Maybe he's hoping business will begin before Eli corners him and asks him about what the Lord said. I don't know. But Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He said, here I am. Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Mm. Let him do what seems good to him. There's nothing surprising in Samuel's message to Eli. He'd heard it from the man of God. It was just confirmation that God will do what he says he will do. And we see God actually do what he says he will do in chapter 4, but that will have to wait until next week. So it all ends, all of the darkness of Hophni and Phinehas with the little bursts of light of Samuel ends with this confirmation. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that is from north to south, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So here you have two, a very clear distinction. Hophni and Phinehas on one side, Samuel on the other. Hophni and Phinehas serve themselves. Samuel serves the Lord. Hophni and Phinehas have closed ears to God. Samuel has open ears to God. Hophni and Phinehas are great in sin. Samuel grows to be great in godliness. Side note, the very language for their great sin of Hophni and Phinehas is the word that is used as a verb to grow when it speaks of Samuel. So Samuel grows in godliness. Hophni and Phinehas are known to everyone by their wickedness. Samuel is known to everyone by his faithfulness. 
In the days of Hophni and Phinehas, the word of the Lord was rare, and in the days of Samuel, the word of the Lord returns. Hophni and Phinehas receive God's condemnation. Samuel receives God's confirmation. Now think back to Hannah. Why did God answer her prayer? Think about that again. Why would God answer her prayer? Now, of course, God is merciful. Here is a woman who is oppressed, and she's barren, and she wants to give her son to the Lord, and this is wonderful, and God is merciful, but there is a bigger picture going on here. God is not just merciful and faithful to Hannah. God is merciful and faithful to all of His people. And so through this barren woman, He gives a child that will replace the wicked leaders. Our faithful God is faithful provides faithful leaders for His people. And there'd be a similar scene about a thousand years later. You see, the place would be full of... Jerusalem would be full of God's people. And these leaders of God's people are men who would use their positions to serve themselves, to boost their own ego. They love their titles. They love their privileges. They preach holiness, but they don't live holiness. They're not... At least not a true holiness, not a heart-level holiness. And so into that climate... God answers the longing of His people and gives to a virgin, Mary, a boy named Jesus, the greater Samuel, who is confirmed at His baptism as the Son of God. He speaks the Word of God, and He exposes and condemns the religious leaders of His day, and He takes their place as the true prophet, priest, and king. But Jesus doesn't just take the place of wicked leaders, does He? He took the place of wicked sinners. And having faithfully said and done all that God commands, including dying for us, Jesus is confirmed by the Father once again when the Father raises Him from the dead. Our faithful God has provided Jesus Christ, the faithful leader for His people. And He will never fail us. And He will never leave us. He is the faithful one. Let's pray together.